you have your Bibles, please turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet, but when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is expected who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then, a son, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. This is God's word. If you're a pre-K'er or second grader, you're dismissed for Grace Kids, but instead of using this door, you'll be using this door stage right where my hand is pointing. So Grace Kids, you're now dismissed stage right. So good to be here with you this morning. Always great to be at OGC. Uh, with our church family. Uh, I know there's a number of you who I've not had the opportunity of meeting, uh, but my, my name is Jared Jung, and my wife Shelly and I, we serve with Crew. Uh, we've been in East Asia uh, for most of the past 15 years. Um, I've been most recently working in the area of theological development, and we're now making a transition um, to Singapore, where I'm going to be serving on the faculty of East Asia School of Theology um, in Singapore, and um, continuing to do the work of theological development um, within within Asia. So, uh, OGC is our sending church. We're always glad to be here. Consider this our church family. And unfortunately, the the, the craziness of the past year has not allowed us to to be here as much as we wanted to be. Um, but we do treasure the times that we get to be here. And it's especially a privilege to be able to be here this morning and, uh, and to look at the word together and to, to be able to preach here. So uh, last week in Jim's sermon, his Easter sermon, um, he talked about Christ and resurrection preaching from the book of John. But he did reference our passage that we're looking at this morning in 1 Corinthians, uh, referencing Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 15 about Christ uh, being the first fruits. And I'm just going to be picking up from there this morning. I, I know some of you, maybe you heard the passage uh, read this morning and maybe you thought that I had mixed up the weeks and I thought that this week was Easter. Um, not last week, but actually on the church calendar, technically it is still Easter. We still have a number of weeks of Easter, so I thought we could just keep preaching the resurrection, uh, if that's okay with you all. Um, so we're going to be in 1 Corinthians 15 this morning, starting in verse 20, if you have a Bible and you want to turn there. And um, b- before we dive into this, would you first pray with me? Father God, we come before you in the name of your son this morning, eager to 
eager to hear your word, to what you have to say to us. We fallen, sinful creatures redeemed by the blood of Jesus, but still struggling with sin, still with those, those limits. You are transcendent creator. We thank you that you choose not only to redeem us, but to speak through your word to us that we may know how to respond, that we may know how to live. I pray as we look at uh, this passage this morning that you would speak, Lord, to these, your people. That this word would light their feet, would be a lamp for their path, that you might be glorified in our lives, both individually and corporately as a church. And we ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, if I could sum up for you the teaching of this passage that we are looking at today, it would be that by his resurrection, Christ brings the kingdom to bear on this world. By his resurrection, Christ brings the kingdom of God to bear on this world. And therefore, there's a therefore with that, therefore we as a church are to preview that kingdom to the surrounding world. By his resurrection, Christ brings his kingdom to bear on this world, and therefore, we as a church are to preview that kingdom to the surrounding world. Up to this point in our passage this morning, Paul has been explaining to the Corinthian church the importance of the resurrection. Why is it important? And the way he starts doing this is he starts doing it by kind of flipping things and looking at it from from the negative side. In other words, what would happen, what would it be like if Christ had not risen from the dead, if the resurrection did not happen. And, and he says that if that's the case, then our faith essentially is null and void, right? It, it's futile. We're still in our sins. There is no salvation. But then we get to verse 20, and Paul says, but in fact, in other words, everything I've just said, though, as bad news as that might be, it's not bad news because it's all hypothetical, In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. And Jim last week spoke about what it means for Christ to be the the first fruits and what that means for our life. That that because of the resurrection, we can can see what our bodies are going to look like. We can see what life is going to look like when, when sin is no longer a struggle, when the sufferings of this world are no longer a part of this world. And because of that, we are a people of hope. And today I'm just going to piggyback on that. And and I'm just going to continue to look at the impact of the resurrection. Verse 21, and I'm going to have to speak louder here. Verse 21, for as man, for as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection from the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Paul here takes us back all the way to the creation of the world, the creation itself, and the pinnacle of that creation. People, Adam and Eve, created 
in God's image, the, the only part of creation that was created in the image of God, who were given this task, we read in Genesis chapter 1, chapter 2, of stewarding the rest of creation, of, of multiplying, filling the earth, subduing it. In Genesis 2, working the ground. In other words, taking the, 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 the task they were given was to take the glory of Eden, that, that place of God, and spread it to the rest of the world so that the knowledge of the glory of God would fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. That, that is not just a statement, a post-fall mission that we see in Isaiah or in Habakkuk, but, but this is the mission that it's always been. Even before the fall, the mission that was given to Adam and Eve they were to multiply, to grow, to cultivate, to, to develop culture and society and institution, to, to develop this world, to glorify God as one unity, right? A, a, a unity created as a unity made of diverse parts, a unity in diversity. I'm, I'm, I'm going to the, the Reformed theologian Herman Bovink here, this idea that Creation exists as an organic unity of diverse parts, and Bobbing goes so far as to say we actually reflect our Creator, the triune Creator, in our unity and diversity. Just as God, the being of God, is a diverse unity, so we are a diverse unity in creation as a whole, but also in humanity. And that means that just as Adam and Eve were to multiply, to grow humanity, so mankind, what they're growing is a united whole with its diverse individuals, meant to, to glorify God. But we know how the story goes. Adam and Eve failed at their mission. Rather than glorify God, they, they sought their own glory. And when that happened, sin enters into the world, and sin has a profound impact on this world. It takes every part of man that was created for God's glory and, and redirects it and twists it and corrupts it to where mankind seeks his own glory, to where the creature is worshipped instead of the creator, to where man sets himself up as an enemy of the very one who created him in love. And not only did sin impact Adam and Eve, but just as humanity is a unity and diversity at creation, so sin impacts mankind and infects mankind, not only as an individual, but mankind as a whole, Adam's progeny. To where every aspect of human existence now, not only the individual, but also the cultures, the societies, the institutions that are made up of those individuals, they're all polluted and corrupted by sin. And Adam all die. And because of sin, man is cursed, banished from the garden and experiences death, the, the, the spiritual death of separation from God and then eventually the physical death that man was never meant to experience. And this curse touches not only mankind but all of creation. In Adam all die. The impact of sin on our world is overwhelming. 
And yet sin does not have the last word. Because while sin can twist and corrupt even the best intentions of man, turning them to evil purposes, while sin can take God's creation, set it against God, Satan is a created limited being. And so his power is limited. Sin can redirect man's affections towards evil ends, but in the end, sin cannot defeat God. And the surest sign of this in Scripture, I think, is that while man is set up, while man sets himself up as an enemy of God, man doesn't lose the image of God. He is still an image bearer of God. In other words, Satan does not have the power to corrupt God's good creation beyond its ability to be redeemed. That's the story of Scripture. And how does God accomplish this redemption? From the image of God comes a son of Eve, the one who is the image of God. The second person of the Trinity takes on human flesh, enters into our broken humanity, takes on the the limits of humanity, doesn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, as Matt talked about earlier from Philippians chapter 2, He makes himself into the form of a servant, takes on the very flesh of man. That's Christmas. That's the incarnation. The provider of nourishment, himself hungers. The creator of of life himself undergoes suffering, undergoes temptation by the very one that that he created. The the one who is pure love himself undergoes the suffering of rejection and betrayal by those who are closest to him. Fully divine, he takes on our broken flesh. He bears the weight of the curse as a full human. But, but, where we fail, he does not. Where we sin, he does not. And he bears it all to the cross sinlessly where Paul tells us that the one who knew no sin goes so far as to become sin for us. Our rebellion, our twisted, corrupted state, he takes that on his flesh, in his flesh on the cross, not because he had sinned, but because he bore our sin. He bears the sin of Adam, that in Adam all die. That's Good Friday. And he bears it for us, taking the fullness of the curse which we are under, and he takes that to death, to its end point, to the tomb. And then he rises again in the flesh, the image of God, sinless, deathless, curseless. And we today, united to him by faith, we share in that. In Christ, all are made alive. And the impact of Christ's resurrection is not just on the soul, but on the body and the soul. As sure as Jesus is resurrected today in the flesh, and the impact of the resurrection is not only meant for the individual, but just as humanity is created as a diverse unity, is fallen as a diverse unity, 
Jesus purchases for himself a diverse unity of those to whom he would unite himself, the church. In Christ, all are made alive. In Christ, the curse of sin on creation is undone. He takes it all on himself and he heals it as far as that curse is found. So the impact of the resurrection is nothing less than the impact of sin. The impact of the resurrection goes just as far as the impact of sin. As in Adam all die, so in Christ all are made alive. All shall be made alive, Paul says. Just as in Adam the people of God would become the enemies of God. So in Christ, enemies of God become people of God, united to him, united to each other in a diverse unity. God will not be defeated by Satan. Sin will not have the last word. And here's the thing. This story that we're talking about here, this narrative, and I think Paul takes the grand narrative of scripture and he sums it up really succinctly here. As in Adam all die, in Christ all are made alive. This story of who we are as a people, it's not just another story, another narrative to make us feel good about ourselves or to make us feel good about what the world is. No, the resurrection of Christ ensures that this story here, this story is the story. It's not just another version of a potential reality for those who choose to believe it. It's reality itself. Or as the theologian Kevin Van Hooser puts it, the story of scripture is the way things are. And Christ's resurrection is the surest sign of this. Make no mistake, what we proclaim when we proclaim a resurrected savior is a singular reality that our story is the story, not just of our individual lives, not just of our souls, not just of the corporate church, but it's more cosmic than that. It's the cosmic story of the world. And the resurrection doesn't just declare the, the way that things are, it declares also the way that things will be. Let's keep reading. In Christ shall all be made alive, that's verse 22, but, we're in verse 23 now, but each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits, we've just discussed that, and his undoing of the curse, Christ has started the cosmic undoing of the curse of sin, that's the first fruits, and then at his coming, Paul says, those who belong to Christ, that's us, will experience the fullness of the resurrection. So notice how Paul's moving here. Christ, then us as the church, but then he goes even bigger. In verse 24, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. Paul here uses kingdom language. And this is where things get really meta really cosmic because Paul here is speaking of a universal kingdom reign of God, a kingdom that will be delivered to God the Father when all enemies are destroyed and the world is restored. And I think it's worth paying attention 
to the way Paul talks about the kingdom. As he continues to explain in verse 25, it says, For he must reign, talking about Christ, talking about the Son, the second person of the Trinity, he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God's put all things in subjection under his feet, but when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted, talking about Christ, who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, the Son, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him, the Father, who put all things in subjection under him, the Son, that God may be all in all. Let's pay close attention to a couple of things here. First of all, what do we see about the kingdom? First of all, the kingdom, this kingdom is God's kingdom. It is God's rule. And second, this kingdom is not something that exists only in the future. It's a reality now. Only now it's ruled by the Son of God, second person of the Trinity, very God of very God, as the creed says, who who rules it in his resurrected flesh at the right hand of the Father today. Third, Christ, in the end, will put every enemy under his feet. Fourth, this kingdom is a universal kingdom. It's a kingdom that's not limited by time or geographic place. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. You see, the resurrection is not only about us as individuals. It's about worldwide dominion, a universal kingdom. And when I say universal, I don't mean like in the sense of, I don't, what I don't mean is in the sense of universalism as in, Everybody gets to be a part of this no matter if uh, you believe in Christ or not. That's not what I'm saying. By universal, I mean the kingdom reign expands everything, right? There's nothing that's not under the reign of Christ. This is a kingdom that was to be before the fall. Remember Adam's mission to fill the earth with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters fill the sea. It's a kingdom that was brought about by Jesus in his atoning life, his atoning death, and his victorious resurrection by which he defeated sin, Satan, And the last enemy, death. And keep in mind here what Paul's giving us. He's giving giving us a picture of reality. The way things are. This is the truth. Because Christ has risen, the resurrection speaks to what God has done in the world. Because Christ has risen, the resurrection speaks to what God will do in the world. And it may not look like, it may not look like this is a reality now. But it is our reality. Because things have to happen, Paul says, each in its own order. Because in the end, the resurrection is about nothing less than world dominion. So the times may look dark, but the light has dawned. The sun, S-O-N, has risen, right? Like the first rays of the, of the S-U-N sun over the horizon. And that rise is going to continue until he's like the noonday sun. You can't escape it. It lights everything. Darkness will have no place because Christ will bring a kingdom reign in its fullness. The creation will be redeemed and consummated in its fullness. And nothing less than the entirety of the created universe will bow to him. 
His enemies will be put to death. The first fruits will bear full fruit. That's our story. That's our reality. That's the way things are. And if you're here today and you're a Christian, this is your reality. And if you're here today and you're not a Christian, maybe you're exploring Christianity, I would be remiss to not tell you this is your reality too. There is a king who has risen from the dead. One day he will return, he will make all things new. He's going to redeem what is broken. He'll defeat all of his enemies. 100%. It's been ensured by his resurrection. And when that is done, he'll return the kingdom to his father. And if you don't believe in, you wouldn't call yourself a Christ follower, a Christ believer today. I don't, I don't want to coddle you. You don't want to be on the wrong side of that. Let go of your sin. Let go of the other false narratives that you're laying claim to. Let go of the idols, these false idols that you're giving your life to. They, they will fail you. They will not satisfy. And ultimately, they are lying to you about reality. So Paul speaks to what the resurrection has done. He speaks to what it will do. And in speaking of past and future, he also locates us here in the present. Where are we now? We, we live in the time between the times. In light of what the resurrection has done, in hope of what it will do. And I want to I speak to what that means for us in the meantime, just, just by way of application. What does the resurrection mean for us today here in the church, the people of God? The, the recreated unity of, of, of diverse parts. Well, let me start by emphasizing what we're not, what this doesn't mean. First, we as the church, we, we ourselves as the church are not the sole bringers of the kingdom. Now, let me explain that. Christ certainly uses us to expand his kingdom rule, to bring his kingdom to bear, right? Uh, that, that's our mission, the place where he's worshiped as king on the earth. But we can't expect to be the ones who are going to bring this kingdom reign in its fullness. Rather, we, we, we face the reality, the reality that sin still infects this world at every level. It twists and corrupts and still turns what is meant for God's glory to its own ends. And it's going to be that way until Christ returns. So on the one hand, we're not, we're not kingdom bringers in the sense that we're the ones in charge of bringing the kingdom. But on the other hand, we as the church are also, we're not just merely passive kingdom awaiters, like we're just awaiting the kingdom passively. What I mean is that we, we don't just separate ourselves from the world around us and wait. Like what happens in the world is out there. We're in here. Like... If we're part of the king, we're, we're, we're part of the kingdom of God, here, the world is there. There's a wall between us. But rather, because the kingdom has been inaugurated, and we are the people of that kingdom, we are the ones who call Christ king, we are the ambassadors of that kingdom here on earth, and being a kingdom people means that we are those who actively 
fill, we actively seek to fill the earth with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. We're, we, we engage. We don't just actively wait. Yes, sin has a tremendous influence on every part of creation, but it doesn't have the last word. And so we don't just concede the world to Satan and wait for the end. Satan may be the prince of this world, but he's not a king. Because Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits. And he is bearing fruit right now. That, the promise is assured. The future is assured. And that means we don't just separate ourselves and wait for the kingdom as if it's all in the future and the resurrection means nothing for right now. So if we're not the, the bringers of the kingdom on the one hand and we're not just passively awaiting the kingdom on another hand, where does that leave us now? Now we, we manifest the kingdom. Or as one of my professors, Bruce Ashford, puts it, we, we preview the kingdom of God. Just like the preview of a movie, it's not the movie itself, but it does let you know what the movie's about, what, who the characters are, what the storyline is, how, how is the storyline going to play out. We do the same for the kingdom of God. So we're not just to look like, we're not to look exactly like the world because we're distinct, right? And the world, it's living a lie about reality. And yet we're not also completely separate from the world without ever engaging or interacting with it in any way because the world is the theater for God's narrative drama from creation all the way to consummation. And in the end, the creation, it's not gonna be annihilated and started from scratch. Satan won't get that kind of a victory. It will be redeemed, restored, renewed, and brought to the glory for which it was created. So in the time between the times, we're those who live according to the way things are. We know the story of the world. We know that Christ's resurrection means that the kingdom will come and it will come in its fullness. But we know that it is coming right now and it has started. And we manifest the story of the world around us that's living a lie. We, we preview the kingdom. Now, how is it that we go about previewing the kingdom? I think there are two parts to it, previewing the kingdom. The first part is that we proclaim the gospel of the kingdom. The second part is that we demonstrate the gospel of the kingdom. There's kingdom proclamation and then there's kingdom demonstration. And, and the two work together. It's not one or the other. It's not an either or. It's a both and. Previewing the kingdom involves both. So on the one hand, the resurrection means that the kingdom of God is being brought to the world today. And that's good news. It's news that we've been given to proclaim. Because it means that this world, created to glorify God, but fallen and cursed, is being renewed and restored not just to its original purpose before, but to, to its fulfilled purpose. Our God has conquered the darkness in the resurrection and our God will conquer because he is risen. And this is good news to a world that's living in lies and alternate realities. And it's the message that we have to proclaim. We speak the true reality, the good reality, the beautiful reality of the resurrection 
to a kingdom that is coming to the groaning, hurting world that, that's clinging and, and it's clawing to its false realities. We preview the kingdom by proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. But on the other hand, we preview the kingdom by demonstrating the kingdom. And I think being in America, we've spent a little over a year in America now. <laughs> what, what, a, what a year to choose to be in America. 2020, 2021, we didn't choose it. Uh, COVID chose it for us. But um, in our current cultural milieu, I think this idea of demonstrating the kingdom, uh, it's an area where we've really become split, I've noticed. Right? Uh, what does it mean to demonstrate the kingdom? Well, we, we demonstrate what the kingdom is like. It's very simple. Is the kingdom a place where the poor are lifted up, where the least are made the greatest? Then we lift up the poor and oppressed, not, not only among ourselves as the church, but we manifest it and do it in the world as well. Is the kingdom a place where the brokenhearted are bound up? Then, then we care for the brokenhearted, not only among ourselves, but in the world as well. Is the kingdom a place where unity abounds in love? Then we love each other as the church in unity and we invite others into the love of this unity. Is the kingdom a kingdom of justice? Then we pursue justice where we see justice lacking. Justice for those who experience injustice whether it exists because of, of the color of one's skin, because of one's ethnic heritage, because of one's fetal status in the womb. And I think these are the areas where in today's American evangelicalism and, and even in today's reformed evangelicalism, the idea of kingdom demonstration, it seems to be tearing us apart. And the truth is that the reasons underlying some of these divisions that we face in evangelicalism today and, and, and even in reformed evangelicalism, I, I, these reasons are immense in number. And, and, and they're immense in complexity. I mean, they really, they present a web and it's difficult to untangle. And I'll add that I don't think it's, not that I don't think, it's not going to be untangled by clicking like or dislike or share, it's not gonna be untangled in 200 characters or less or whatever it is. It's, it's not gonna be untangled via a five minute video clip. And I'll also add that, believe it or not, these issues are not new to the church today. We've seen these issues before and I don't think we can untangle all of these here today, but if I could just draw from this to offer one small help I think we run into trouble because we've lost the fact that we have the story to tell. And what happens is that we cede the field to the world. Too easily we cede the field to the world and its false realities. So on the one hand, when we withdraw and we become passive kingdom awaiters, when we say, look, because the world does this sort of engagement, it does it on non-Christian foundations, therefore we don't do that. We don't engage. Then we cede the field to the world. We fail to demonstrate the kingdom. We become passive kingdom awaiters. 
And we allow the world to dictate the problems and the solution to those problems on its terms. And what happens? The resurrection is not brought to bear on the world. But on the other hand, as we engage, our engagement has to be a critical engagement. We don't just simply jump in and engage on the world's terms because the reality is that sin has impacted every aspect of humanity from the individual to its societies and cultures and institutions and yes, even, even the solutions to problems. And we, when we engage solely on terms of the world, again, what happens, we cede the field to the world and its false narratives and its false realities. And the resurrection is not brought to bear on the world. We have to avoid both. And what I'm talking about here, it's not, a, it's not a Goldilocks compromise. It's not just meeting in the middle. What I'm talking about here is a reconstruction of how we engage the world around the story, the better story that we have to tell. It's going to agree in some places because common grace says that the world is going to be borrowing from us, from these story in some places. It's going to offend in some places because sin does impact every aspect of life and it does set up every aspect of life against God. So it's hard work. That's why I say it's not going to be done in the ways that I think many people are going about it now. It's tough work. It's difficult work. It's painful work but it's necessary work if we're gonna bring the resurrection to bear, if we're gonna be kingdom demonstrators who proclaim the gospel of the kingdom to the world. What Paul presents here is nothing less than a reality, and it's a reality of restoration that's been brought about by the kingdom. The Father created through the Son and the Spirit. Satan tempted the Father's creation to twist it to its own anti-godly ends and its unity and diversity. The Father sent the Son to take on the fullness of that curse. The Father raised the Son from the dead, set all things under the Son's kingly reign. The resurrected Son reigns and he's bringing the kingdom to its full completion and it will be brought to its full completion in the last days. He will undo the curse. He will defeat sin, Satan, and the last enemy, death. This is our reality. This is the reality in which we live. And God is providentially bringing it about today. And as we who know this reality, who call the one true king, our king, we live new lives, looking forward to the final resurrection in the kingdom that will be restored and brought in its fullness. But in the meantime, we preview this kingdom by proclaiming its good news and demonstrating it to the world around us. That's the story that Paul is telling. This is the good news of the resurrection in our part in this resurrection narrative. Would you pray with me? Father, we ask that you would Lord, that you would move us, Lord, not to only be awaiters of the kingdom or to try to bring the kingdom ourselves, but to live in the time between the times faithfully. Father, would you strengthen us for this task? It is complicated. 
It's difficult. It's weighty. And yet Paul here gives us a promise that it's necessary. And it's necessary because in one sense the task has already been fulfilled. And in another sense it's coming. All of that is ensured by your son's resurrection. We ask for your help with this in the name of Jesus. Amen.